Amen. Amen. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the, the passage that was just read just a minute ago. I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there in a the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 961 in the Bibles in front of, uh, in the chairs in front of you. If you do not have your own Bible, that is a gift from us to you. We would appreciate, we would celebrate you taking that, using it. God's word is the word that works. It is powerful and mighty. It will radically transform your life. So we would encourage you to have that, take it with you. The Version Live event's out there for you as well. Uh, the notes will be there if you'd like to follow along. Uh, just don't look on Facebook. Your neighbors will judge you if you do. I'm just kidding. Uh, well, they might, but I, I, don't, I don't know that they will, so I can't say that for certain. So as we've watched that video, his point is clear, right? Jesus accomplished the work that he had come to do. He accomplished it. Isn't that right? That's right. No, come on, really. You guys, he accomplished it. Isn't that right? That's right. See, we're going to start something new this morning. On this Easter morning, for the rest of our lives, as you come to this church, you are allowed to talk back. You're allowed to engage a little bit, get a little excited, because our Savior is not dead. He is alive. If there's anybody that should be hooting and hollering, it's the people of God, because our Savior was crucified, but on the third day rose, and he accomplished the work that he came to accomplish it. Isn't that right? Amen. That's right. In fact, you should be standing up shouting and screaming. I mean, I won't, we won't go that far that fast. It's coming. Jesus didn't die because Romans were more powerful. Jesus did not die because he was outwitted by the Jewish leaders. Jesus did not die because of a momentary lapse of judgment or an indecision, like he just didn't decide something quickly enough. He did not die because God ceased to be sovereign for a moment in time. Jesus died on purpose. He died to accomplish the mission that his father had sent him to accomplish. And so when he saw that it had been accomplished, hanging there on the cross, his last, second to last phrase was, it is finished. The work was done. And so the very next phrase that follows that is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's no reason for me to languish here. There's no reason for me to suffer on this cross any longer. There's no reason for me to stay. It is finished. So he prays to his father and he hangs his head and he dies. But this was not a death to be mourned. It's not a death to be, to, to be crying over any longer. It was not a death that indicated defeat as if he had lost some battle against some disease. He had not lost anything. He had succeeded. Jesus laid down his life willingly, even purposefully, so that he could finish the work that he'd been sent to do, and so that we might enjoy it fully. That's why he died. Of course, the hours that followed were filled with grief. I mean, just imagine their experience. As we finished Friday night, it felt unfinished. Like, we've, we're used to singing after we get done, right? Like, we're used to walking out of here on a high note. In fact, if it's not a fast song, we even feel a little bit odd. But when we shut it down and we just pray and go, it feels a little unfinished. It was. It was. But imagine the grief and the misery, the 
These people had given up their lives following this man they thought was the Messiah, and now he's dead. We hurriedly buried him. They rolled a stone in front of his tomb, and they sealed it. There was rumors. There was rumors that something might happen on the third day. So they put a Roman guard outside. They didn't want anybody to come and take his body. But there was nothing that could stop. There was absolutely nothing that could stop Jesus from rising from the grave. Because he had finished his work. And death was not powerful enough to hold him. So on that morning, on that Sunday morning, that third day, his body going into the ground on Friday, laying there on Saturday, and in the, in the middle of the Jewish day on Sunday morning, as the sun is coming up, women going to the tomb to finish the process of preparing his body for burial. They find it empty. And angels there saying, hey, he's not here anymore. He has risen. See, we don't mourn Jesus' death. We don't view it as deceit because on that Sunday morning, the tomb was empty and our Savior was alive. Isn't that right? That's right. He is alive. A couple years ago, I was watching this documentary from National Geographic, and maybe you've seen it. It was about... It was about how Jesus came to power. Like many, many people came into Jerusalem. Many Jewish people came and said, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that God had sent. And they would gather a following. And this is not, Jesus wasn't unique in that. He'd gather a following. They'd get, you know, they'd build a little bit of momentum, but, but eventually they'd get killed by somebody. Somebody would get mad and kill them. And, and their following would die away. Well, sociologists, uh, archaeologists, I mean, uh, people that study history, historians, they're interested in the fact that Jesus' following never died away. That here we are, 2,000 years later, still celebrating this man called Jesus who was crucified on a cross by the Romans because the Jews were tired of him. And it was funny because in one of the episodes, I went looking for it, I can't tell you exactly, you have to watch the whole series, but... There was a moment that struck me as I watched this series. This man, who's got way more credentials behind his name than I do, this man that, that has studied and watched things, and uh, he's sitting there talking to the camera, kind of a, uh, uh, just dialoguing about, about Jesus and why he thinks that he's still being followed by people. He says this really profound statement by a man who obviously doesn't believe based on the way he's saying it. He says, you know, I, I think the key is that several of Jesus' followers became convinced that he rose from the dead. Yeah! That's it! That's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. That's why we believe what we believe. That's why we live the way we live. That's why we still celebrate him. Because we became convinced. Our Savior finished his work, but he didn't remain in the grave. He came up on the third day, and he now lives forevermore. Our Savior is alive. Isn't that right? Amen, that's right. It makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between a delusional man dying, being punished for his crimes on the cross, and a sinless Savior purposefully dying to finish his work. In part, this was Paul's point. I think in these verses that were read just a bit ago from 1 Corinthians 15. 
And primarily he's dealing with doubt in the, in the church in Corinth. He's dealing with doubt about a physical resurrection. But to prove his point, he uses Jesus' life as a powerful illustration that the resurrection is going to happen. But the resurrection is vital to who we are today as believers. I won't read the whole thing. You just heard it read just a minute ago, but we're going to focus on a few verses, just kind of walking through it real quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says this. It says that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So Paul's saying if, if Christ is dead, if he's still in the ground, if the, if the tomb was never found empty, if, as the story goes, they really stole his body and stuck him away somewhere and then were martyred because they stole his body, if he's still really dead, he's saying, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Like, it's purposeless. There's no sense in it anymore. But you realize, you recognize that if, if, if his preaching is in vain, whose preaching is in vain? Mine. Your witness in this world is in vain. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, this hits home. Because I made pretty decent money as an aircraft mechanic and manager in an in a aviation maintenance facility. I, like, I, I, could be, I could be doing something. If Christ is dead, this is in vain. It's not just the preaching that's in vain. The believing. And if their believing is in vain, whose believing is in vain? Ours. Verse 17. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Just another way to say your faith is in vain. It doesn't produce anything. It's empty. It's fruitless. It doesn't result in anything real. Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Not only is it futile, not only is it empty, not only is it powerless, but you are left a sinner. You are without pardon. You are without hope. You have no chance of eternal life in heaven. You will be condemned by your sins. If Christ is dead and has not risen, there is no forgiveness of sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. It says, if in Christ, if in Christ we have Hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. Now you just think about what he just said. If you're believing in Christ and he's dead in the grave, you should be pitied more than the poorest person who has ever lived. You should, the people should feel more sorry for you than those who are living under the greatest amounts of injustice. If Christ is dead, people should look at you and weep for you. You should be pitied above everyone else. That may be hyperbole, but it's hard to see exaggeration in the context of this passage. But oh, I'm especially thankful that he doesn't stop writing there. In fact, the very next verse, in verse 20, <clears throat> there's this powerful word that comes along in the scriptures. It's three letters. But. But. 
We know something's about to change. If Christ is dead, your faith is futile. If Christ is dead, you're in your sins. If Christ is dead, then you are to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There is no reason for us to be pitied. There is no reason for us to be afraid of believing in vain. There is no reason for us to consider our preaching is senseless. There is no reason because Jesus is alive. I'm so grateful that Paul wrote these words. I'm so grateful that the gospel records don't end at the, at the death on the cross and the burial in the ground. I'm so grateful that the story continues. I'm so grateful that our faith and the faith of all that have come before us is fruitful. So grateful that the preaching of the word is not fruitless, it's not futile, it's not empty, but it's powerful. I am so grateful that in Jesus' finished work on the cross, we know that it was followed by the victorious resurrection. Because he finished his work. He died his death, but death was incapable of holding him. This first fruits metaphor is an important one. It provides us two perspectives that we need to, that we need to just see and think about as we consider this. First fruits, it points us to the first sheaf of the harvest that would be presented in the temple. So this was part of their, the Jewish uh, ceremony. This is part of, their, part of their practices of worship. As the crops were coming up and as, the, as the, it was time to begin to harvest, the first fruits that were available in the harvest, they would be brought into the temple and they'd be given as an offering. And this, this, this demonstrative of, of, of the fact that the whole crop, that all of the, the, the fruits that would come out of the crop, every grain of wheat, every ear of corn, whatever it was that they were raising, every bit of it would be brought in, uh, to, or not every bit of it, the first fruits would represent every last ounce of the produce that would come from it. And it would demonstrate that the whole thing belonged to God. It would consecrate the whole thing unto him. It would make the whole thing holy. It was a representation. It was one small piece, the first fruits, one small piece of all that was going to come. But saying, hey, this is all because of you. This is all yours. It is unto you. And Jesus is that first fruits for us. But more than that, not just that, First fruits imply more fruits, right? If it wasn't first fruits, they would have called it, if it wasn't first and then some follow it, they would have called it only fruits. Like that would have been it. Like you're giving the whole thing over. First fruits implies more fruits to come. This is just the beginning. He's the first one. He is the first one. He rose, and because he rose bodily, physically, death has no hold on those who follow him. Death has no hold on his people. Gordon Fee writes this in his commentary on this passage. By calling Christ the first fruits, Paul is asserting by way of metaphor that the resurrection of the believing dead is absolutely inevitable. Death will not hold any power over those who believe and trust in Christ. The, 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 the resurrection of the believing dead is absolutely inevitable. It has been guaranteed by God himself. Because our Jesus has risen, our salvation is secure. Because Jesus has risen, our faith is not in vain. Our preaching is not in vain. Because he has risen, there is no reason for us to walk around being pitied now we are a light that shines in the midst of darkness. And our witness goes out and provides light to those who need it. Because of his cross, 
we are able to be saved. But because he's alive, we can be certain we are saved. Jesus' resurrection makes the salvation of God's people certain without a doubt. It's, it's, it's as if it's already happened. What he finished on the cross is finished for all who trust him because he lives. That's the point, I think, in Paul's teaching there. That's the, that's the perspective that he needs them and longs for them to see. He teaches them to see. Well, what is it then that Jesus finished? Like, we talk about him finishing. What is it specifically that he finished? Well, that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about. I think there's like five things. I didn't number them, uh, so we'll, we'll see how many there are, but, but I think there's five. We're not going to stay in 1 Corinthians 15. We're actually going to walk through several passages in the New Testament. The verses will be on the screen uh, behind me, but I encourage you, if you're, if you're following along, write these things down and go and study the Word. My, 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 my exposition, I pray, is, is useful of God's, uh, by God's Spirit. But his word is powerful. So write these passages down and you go and you read them and contemplate them and think on them and, le- and, and, and seek after him in them. Well, what did Jesus finish in his death and his resurrection? What's so certain in our salvation? First, I would say God's wrath has been satisfied. God's wrath has been satisfied. Now, that's not a popular topic today, but you need to hear this. You need to know this. In the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, his wrath has been satisfied. Not in part, not some of it, not some small piece of it, but in whole. Every last ounce of it. Let's look at this. Romans 1.18 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And God's wrath, what we can see here, one of the lessons we can learn here is that God's wrath is justified because man is unrighteous, because man is is a sinful people. God's wrath is being revealed because of our sin. He, he, He is able to be angry. In fact, he should be angry. What would it say about him if he wasn't angry? When we get angry, we get angry when drunk people drive. We get angrier when drunk people have an accident and hurt people. We get angry when spouses cheat. We get angry when adults hurt children. Isn't it right to be angry over those things? If we can be angry about injustice and sin and evil, shouldn't God be able to be angry? Every sin is ultimately against him. All unrighteousness is a rebellion in some way against him. Isn't he allowed to be angry? Shouldn't he be angry? If he wasn't angry, wouldn't that say something about this God? But God... He didn't tell Paul to quit writing it, Romans chapter 1. Like there's a whole lot that's going to follow Romans chapter 1. His wrath is justified. It is righteous anger. The condemnation for sin is righteous and just. 
Because we don't only just live unrighteously, but we bury the truth beneath our unrighteousness. We cover it up and we make lies seem like truth. It's not the end. In fact, the reality is is that we begin to see after Paul has proven his point in the first two chapters that man is, uh, uh, is under God's condemnation and under his wrath, after Paul proves that case, he turns in Romans chapter 3 and begins to allow us to see a glimpse of the fact that God's wrath in total has been satisfied. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, says, But now for the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through the law. and Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All are condemned. All are under God's wrath. But by faith, we can be made Righteous. Well, what he's saying is this, that we can be justified. This courtroom language is this idea that, that as the gavel falls, instead of hearing guilty, you hear the judge pronounce you innocent. He says to you, you're innocent. You're free to go. You're free to live because of the blood of Jesus Christ and our faith in it. Huh. How, do you, how do you imagine this looks today in your life? I mean, just consider it for just a minute. On a scale of one to ten, on, on a scale of smiley faces, like you go to the doctor and they're like, how bad does it hurt? Is it a big smiley face or is it a big frowny face? Or are you just kind of in the middle? When, when God looks at you, is he smiling on you? Is he just indifferent, like just got the straight line across his face? Or is he grieved and sad? Let's go one step further. Is he angry? You see, what, what Jesus did in dying and in rising, what Jesus has done for us is he has taken all of God's wrath. He has moved us on the scale from righteous anger, from being the object of his wrath. He has moved us from this place where we belonged at the bottom end of the scale. And he says, no, he is pleased with you. He will only ever see you in the light of his grace. He will only ever look at you with a smile on his face. He will only ever look at you as a father looks on their child who they love and who they are pleased with and who they long to see be made fruitful and grow in wisdom and discernment. You see, the reality is this, brothers and sisters, the reality is this. If in some way you do not see yourself on the end of the scale where the Father is pleased with you, then you are not believing that the work is finished. If in some way you think God is displeased with you, even though you trust him, as imperfect as that trust is, as imperfect as that faith might be, if you are not believing that you are on the end of the scale where he is completely satisfied with you in Christ, then you are believing that he did not finish his work. And by your good works and by your imperfect effort, you have to in some way make up for what he didn't finish. 
Jesus said, hanging there on the cross, it is finished. Can you believe him? Can you trust in that and in that alone? See, God's wrath in his son is completely satisfied so that we are justified by his grace. We are innocent by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Second, I would like, to see, like you to see that, that, that in Jesus' finished work on the cross and through his resurrection, God remains righteous to forgive. <laughs> and as he forgives you, he doesn't even get a little bit dirty, and he doesn't leave you in any way uncleansed, unforgiven. It has all been forgiven in Christ. We'll pick it up in three, uh, Romans 3.25. It says, whom God, speaking of Jesus, Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Not by works. This is not us doing things. This is us believing things to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The Father, God, had been passing over sins since the moment that Adam and Eve fell into sin. They ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. They ate, and, and, and Adam and Eve, when they hear God in the garden, they hear him coming, and they're like, oh, we got to hide. And calls out for them. We hid. We're naked. Well, who told you you're naked? Well, did you eat the fruit? I, we ate the fruit. Do you remember what God told them that he would do if, he, if they ate the fruit? What was going to happen if they ate the fruit? Thank you. Come on. I'm not alone here, am I? What's going to happen if they, die, or if they eat the fruit? They're going to die. But what happened when they ate the fruit? They didn't die. Because God was looking over their sin. He didn't kill them. He didn't crush them. He didn't smite them in that moment and walk away. Now I heard somebody say, yeah, they did. But certainly, there's a spiritual separation that immediately happened. But they did not physically die. In fact, he sends them out of his presence. And in so doing, he promises them there's one that's going to come. And it's going to make it all right. So yes, they were spiritually separated. Yes, we we're all spiritually dead. Yes, we we're all sinners falling short of the Savior. But in that moment, he was free and he would have been right if he had made them quit breathing and had fallen on the ground dead. But they didn't die. In fact, in fact, he'd been looking over sins and he'd been entering into agreements with sinful people all throughout history. He entered into agreements with Noah, who was a sinful man. He entered into agreements with Abraham, who was a sinful man. He entered into agreements with Moses, who was a sinful man. He entered into agreements with uh, the Israelites, who were full of sinful people. Until Jesus came. And one who was perfect walked on the face of the earth. And one who came allowed God to overlook the sins of the past 
and he's not finished, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. God remained righteous even then so that he might be the just, that's the righteous, that's the clean one, that's the, that's the sinless one, so that he might remain or be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That means that he is not only righteous, but he is the one who makes people righteous as they have faith in Jesus. See, God remains completely without sin. There's a misunderstanding that Jesus didn't just die for you. Jesus didn't die for you alone. He didn't die simply for his people. He died so that his father could forgive you and not become an unholy judge. It happened here in Springfield. A guy, a drunk driver, speeding down the road, gets in a wreck, ends up, uh, I think, killing people. And the judge lets him off with a slap. And you remember the outcry? This is a few months ago. You remember the outcry? You remember what people thought of that judge? What's that? What are they thinking? I can't believe it. God's not unjust. God is not a bad judge. He is not a judge that doesn't bring the real and right consequence for sin. But imagine yourself standing there in that courtroom. See, it's not the drunk driver. It's not the rapist. It's not the murderer. It's you and it's me standing in this courtroom. You know what's interesting about the courtroom? There's one person in that courtroom who is convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt whether they're guilty or not guilty. It happens to be the person on trial. You know what's interesting about God's courtroom? There's someone else that knows beyond a shadow of a doubt if you're guilty or not guilty. And in his righteous judgment, his gavel is coming down, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. I take the blame for that. And I don't just take the blame for that. I take the consequence for that. You see, I died in his place. I died in her place for her sin. He or she is forgiven. And you are right to release them. You are right to call them just. You are right to forgive them in full. God, the Father says, you are innocent. And not an ounce of guilt falls to him. And not an ounce of guilt remains with you. God, through his son Jesus, fully forgives us. And fully remains righteous as he does. Next, I would say that God's people, his finished work brings to us. God's people are no longer subject to the law. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So Jesus is cursed so that we wouldn't be cursed any longer. This doesn't mean that we get to just walk around doing whatever we want, living all willy-nilly and silly about things. That's not what I'm saying. Obedience is driven out of faith. Obedience comes out of what we believe. But our obedience doesn't in any way enable us to walk into the throne room of God. We can only do that through Christ's shed blood and his resurrected life. That's what we've been talking about. 
What this means is that no longer are we as Christians judged by the law. But if in some way you think that your keeping of the Ten Commandments makes it more possible for you to walk into his throne room, to stand in his presence. Well, I kept the Ten Commandments so, so God is pleased with me. I kept the Ten Commandments so God's not angry with me. I kept this thing. We're not believing. We're not trusting in the finished work of Christ. We do not attain our right standing. We do not attain God's pleasure simply by our works. Now, let me throw, throw a caveat on here. Because obedience will follow faith. If you are truly trusting in Jesus Christ, you will become obedient to Jesus Christ. It is the natural reaction. As natural as it is for you to come in and sit down in these chairs because you believe they're going to hold you. As natural as, natural as it is for you to climb into the shower because you think the water is going, because you believe the water is going to cleanse you. As natural as it is for you to, to eat food because you believe it's going to nourish you. As natural as it is for you to act on every other thing you believe. It is a natural reaction to obey the one who you believe in. Now I'm not talking about believe in him like you believe in Santa. I'm not talking about some believing he is a real historical person. Part of it. But a very small part of it. This is believing him, trusting him like you're trusting those chairs, trusting him like you trust in the food, trusting him like, like you trust the water that's washing you. You believe him so you obey him. You trust him so you obey him. But your obedience is a reaction and not the thing that, it, that gains you anything. Your obedience is the reality of your expression of faith. It's not the way that you prove to God that you're finally acceptable to him. So we believe, and that leads to obedience. But because of his finished work, the rules you make up for yourself and expect you and others to follow, and you think about this, this is, uh, dawned on me uh, a minute ago, in the, and actually in the first service. We do one of two things. We take the Ten Commandments and we say, everybody's got to obey the Ten Commandments. If they're going to be acceptable, God, they've got to obey the Ten Commandments. And we look at people with disdain and frustration when they don't live up to our expectations and the Ten Commandments. Or we make up a bunch of rules of our own. Like, we're really good at making up rules of our own. If you're going to go with one, if you're going to try to live up to one, if you're going to try to work your salvation out on your own, by your own power, let me encourage you not to do it by one you made up on your own. Who are you to make up a law? Let me encourage you, if you're going to do it, if you refuse to believe in the Savior who died and then who rose, if you refuse to trust in him for salvation, let me encourage you, do your best to live perfectly in accordance with his law. Because it's the only other way. And by, 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 just by the way, everybody else that's done it has failed. L let me encourage you to believe in the one who did it perfectly, who died in your place for your sin, but who death couldn't hold, and who rose on the third day. He finished that work. Let's not believe in ourselves. We're really not that trustworthy. I'm speaking about myself more than I am you.
of God through his son's finished work and his resurrection, he removes from us the curse of the law. And God's people next, I would say, the thing that Jesus finished on the cross and through his resurrection, God's people are now reconciled to him and each other. Divisions can be, let me, let me specify this, can be, should be, completely removed. There's a call, in Ephesians 4, there's a call for us to work hard for the unity that comes through the Spirit, the bond of peace that comes in the Spirit. There's a reality that we're called to this. But we're not called to do something that he's not provided for us. In fact, you can see it all over the New Testament letters. But there are a number of places we could go. But, but Ephesians chapter 2, I think Paul gets really clear. He, sp- he deals with it specifically. So just read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, beginning in verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And he's speaking specifically to Jews and Gentiles, right? So there's a distinction. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There was a real division. There were people, covenant people of God, and there was everybody else. There were people who were a part of God's covenant, and there was everyone else. There was a real distinction, a real division between these people. They were far off. They were alienated from the commonwealth. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope. They were without God in the world. But now, he says, another beautiful moment where that word, that three-letter word comes in, very powerful word, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near for he himself is our peace. We have been brought near to God. We have been brought into his presence. We have access to the Father, he'll say in just a little bit, because of Jesus Christ. For he himself, in verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing, you hear it again, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. So making peace, one new man, we'll just call him the church. That's what he calls us, so I think it's okay, right? The church. No longer Jew or Gentile, we're just the people of God, the church. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let's skip down to verse, uh, verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You think that's indicative or or descriptive of the church today? I think the reality is is that many of us do not believe that divisions have ended. 
You think, I, I, think, I think the sad reality is that while Christ, through his finished work on the cross and then the guarantee of his resurrection, he has torn down the dividing wall, but I am afraid that we are not believing in that and that we, in our own lives, are turning. And as he knocked that wall down, we're picking those bricks back up and we are placing them between us over and over and over. We build the wall of hostility when we divide over any socioeconomic difference. You don't, you don't have enough money in your bank account, so I'm not coming to your house. Your skin is the wrong color, so I'm not hanging with you. Uh, you know, men are better than women. These are all lies that the church continues oftentimes to believe because they are not trusting fully in the finished work of our Savior. And while his death and resurrection has destroyed the wall of hostility, has torn it down, it has ended it, we continue to put those bricks in the wall. We rebuild the wall of hostility when we sin against each other and then will not strive to reconcile with one another. Well, you hurt me, so I'm just not going to talk to you about it. I'm just going to carry my grudge around. You sinned against me. The church, there's a bunch of terrible people there. There's a bunch of, bunch of hypocrites. I'm not going to have anything more to do with them. Every time we act in, in, in any way, not seeking to reconcile with brothers and sisters in the faith, we are allowing a wall to reside that Christ has torn down by the finished work of his, uh, of his cross and the certainty of his resurrection. And we rebuild the wall every time we divide over secondary, tertiary, quaternary, quinary, centenary, septenary, and octenary differences. We could go on, but I didn't write those down and I don't know how, it's, how it ends. Hymns or contemporary songs? Oh, maybe we should only sing the Psalms. Music in church? I mean, that's what we argue over. Can't go to that church. They got music. Can't go to that church. They play guitars and drums. Whew. Can't go to that church. I just don't feel the music. All they play is a piano and organ. Calvinist or Arminian? I'm not saying there's some, not something to debate there. It's real good, meaty stuff to debate. Real right things for us to be walk, walking to, towards truth in together. Together. That's the key phrase. Together. Walking in, looking at the truth, letting it change us, letting it shape us, letting it mold us. And yet, what do we do? Well... You're a Calvinist. I don't like you. Well, you're Armenian, so I don't like you. Okay, well, let's just go to different places. Let's not talk to one another. Okay, because I really want to shout at you. Well, I want to shout at you. Okay, let's put a brick back in the wall. Listen, if we're divided over the essentials of the faith, then the gospel has done what the gospel does. We studied that a couple weeks ago, last week, actually, in Luke 
The gospel will naturally divide the living from the dead. We don't have to help in that way. In fact, we can't. We can't. It is the finished work of Christ. And so if there is a difference between you, between you and a brother and sister in the faith over anything that is not essential, let me encourage you. Trust in the finished work of Christ and you fight for reconciliation. For, for what is, it, 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 as much as it's in your ability to do, strive to live at peace with everyone. It just so happens he's actually enabled it within the people of God. Because in his finished work, he has torn down the dividing wall. He has united us to himself and to each other. Finally, God's people. God's people in his finished work, in the finished work of Christ on the cross and by his resurrection, God's people are given eternal life. Not temporarily, not maybe, not partly, but we are able to live forever ever in his presence. Do you know what forever looks like? Just imagine putting a dot on the wall with this sharpie. And I'm not talking about a big fat sharpie. I'm talking about one of the fine point sharpies. You put a dot on the wall and that's your life. And we take that sharpie and we begin to walk around the room drawing a line. We come all the way around the room and we get to the other side and we get back over here to where we drew that dot. It's not even close to forget forever. Not even close to eternity. We could paint the wall black with a fine tip sharpie and that's not the end of forever. Forever never ends. We will be in his presence with him no longer weighed down by the flesh, no longer blinded by our sin, no longer tempted by the things of this world. We will stand in his presence because he lives forever and ever and ever. Isn't that something worth believing? Isn't that something worth cheering about and being excited about? Isn't that something that we are promised? It is. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many who will appear, or will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The beauty of his promise and the finished work of the cross that's secured by his resurrection is this, the best days are yet to come for those who believe. This is as bad as it is gets we will stand in his presence forever and ever the work the work that Jesus finished by his death on the cross is finished for all who trust him because he lives so how how do you receive that how do you walk in that how do you enjoy that There's one application. It's an application that is for every person in this room. Person who has never trusted in Christ. Person who has depended upon their own works. Person who has never even heard the story of Christ. You believe. Believe this is by faith. You trust in Christ. 
and his finished work. He made it certain by his resurrection. But for those of you that believed a long time ago and already have the life of his spirit dwelling within you, believe. Your work is not to do a bunch of works. Your work is to work at believing where you don't yet believe. You see, every one of these points that I brought out, we wrestle hard to work good to impress God because we don't fully believe in the finished work of Christ. We wrestle hard to, to, to prove God that he can forgive us because we don't truly fully believe in the finished work of Christ. We still fight and bicker among one another and this just so happens to be one of the most divided hours of the week as churches gather because of race, because of, of doctrinal beliefs and because of, uh, uh, socio, or because of economics. I gotta go to the rich church because I'm a rich person. Because we don't fully believe in the unity that the Spirit has brought. See, we don't really believe eternal life is going to be better, so we fight really hard to enjoy everything we can now because we're afraid of what we might lose because we don't believe that eternity is going to be as good as he's promised it to be. So if you're a long-time believer, Spirit of God dwelling in you, your work is not to do a whole bunch. Go home and learn to believe in the finished, the accomplished work of Christ on the cross that has been guaranteed because he is not dead. He is alive. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are so grateful. Grateful that your story doesn't end in a garden of sinful people. Grateful that your story doesn't end with a nation filled with failures. Grateful that your story doesn't end at a cross. Jesus, I long to see you. And I'm certain I'm not the only one in the room that does. But while you linger, will you help us in our unbelief? We believe, help us in our unbelief. If there is one here today who has never trusted, who maybe has put on a show for church folks all their life, who maybe even walked an aisle, maybe even got baptized and now as an adult realizes they are still just as lost as they ever were. Would you open that person's eyes to the truth? We are sinners who have been given a Savior. Help us believe him. To satisfy your wrath, to give us forgiveness, to remove us under the curse of the law, to bind us together with your people who have access to you, that we might enjoy life eternal. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.